Hey everybody, Matthew McConaughey here, talking green lights. You are listening to Trey Elling. Books on pod, green lights. The red and yellow ones eventually turn green. So can we all go out there today, tomorrow, and the day after that, creating and catching more of them for ourselves and others. In the meantime, in all times, let's just keep living. Hello, readers. Lou Diamond Phillips is an actor, director, writer, and producer whose credits include La Bamba, Stand and Deliver, Young Guns and the Sequel, Courage Under Fire, Longmire, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Prodigal Son, and You're the Worst. His writing credits now include his first novel, a sci-fi space opera titled The Tinderbox, Soldier of Indira, inspired by the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale of the same name. Lou, thank you for the time. Congratulations on this new book. I've had the chance to read it over the last week or so, and I know that it's number one in the young adult world right now, but as a 42-year-old guy, I really enjoyed the story, so uh, kudos to you on that one. Yay! And I got to say, man, I mean, they said, hey, you've written a really lovely young adult book, and I went, I just set out to write a book. I didn't really intend for it to be young adult, but, you know, I mean, it is because the protagonists are teenagers, and so there you have it. I don't think Shakespeare set out to write Romeo and Juliet as a young adult play. <laughs> you know, it just lent itself to that because of the subject matter. Certainly had a little bit of a Romeo and Juliet feel, although it is uh, obviously inspired by the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale of the same name. Without spoiling too much of the story, what is the summary of The Tinderbox? It very, very closely follows the plot of the original Hans Christian Andersen, but goes off in, you know, obviously some very, very interesting directions because it's set in outer space and not some unnamed country in Europe. In the Hans Christian Andersen, an unnamed soldier is coming back from an unnamed war with an unnamed enemy. <laughs> and, you know, meets a witch and she sends him to the bottom of a tree to retrieve a tinderbox that controls three dogs. And this leads to an interesting journey wherein he may or may not win the hand of a princess. And that's it. I mean, it's very much a fairy tale. Uh, we tried to keep the fairy tale aspects of it. But in extrapolating the story, I, I tried to expand the world and to present hopefully more relevant and more thought-provoking scenarios. What inspired you to turn this into a space opera? You know, it goes back to the original inspiration, and that was my wife's drawings. Yvonne is an amazing illustrator. She's on Instagram, Yvonne Phillips, I think. YV Phil is her Instagram handle. But when we first started dating, she was showing me a lot of her artwork, and I was showing her a lot of my writing. And she had done these incredible manga-style illustrations inspired from the Hans Christian Andersen short story. And because they were manga, they had this obvious Japanese influence and very feudal, very sort of post-apocalyptic and it reminded me of Star Wars, and I said, this would make a great movie. You know, if you're not going to do the graphic novel, because this was 15 years after she had abandoned that, we should do a movie. And so automatically, my thought, you know, from a commercial point of view was, make it a sci-fi, set it in space. You've got Star Wars, Avatar was doing really well. And as far as the fantasy world goes, Game of Thrones hadn't actually happened yet. This is how long this novel has been in the works. Oh, wow. Yeah, 10, 11 years that it's taken me to write it. I mean, Game of Thrones might have just been starting and it was not the massive success that it became. And so I thought, well, let's set the story in space. And that was really the only reason. It was very pragmatically, if we're going to make a big movie out of this story, let's make it more commercial by making it a sci-fi. And then when I finished the screenplay, it was like, oh, this is really, really expensive. 
nobody's going to give you money for this, man. We talked about it, and I talked about it with my manager, J.B. Roberts, who's always been very, very supportive of the writing side of things. And we decided to, to write the novel, to create the world a little bit more, to impose a little bit more authorship on it. That way, in case Michael Bay or James Cameron wanted to you know, buy it from me, <laughs> at least I've created the world. And so that's the journey that we undertook. You write in the acknowledgments that the collaboration with your wife took you both places that you never could have imagined. Like where? Like arguments. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because, and I do say it in the acknowledgments that I hijacked her idea. I think she was willing to let it go. And I also think that she never thought I was going to finish this, you know, <laughs> that it wouldn't be a problem for her. But then when it became very obvious that I was going to finish it and that it was going to sell, Suddenly, I had forced her, literally painted her into a corner to illustrate sci-fi, which she doesn't do. Hmm. Her real wheelhouse are these wonderful sort of German, old-fashioned European woodcut designs based on a lot of the lore she had heard from her grandmother growing up in Germany and reading Hans Christian Andersen and Aesop's Fables and whatnot. And I think one of her real touchstones is also Charles Vess, who you know, had done a lot of Neil Gaiman's work. And that's really how I saw the collaboration going. But she was like, I don't draw spaceships. I don't draw fantastical creatures. And now all of a sudden I put her in a position where she had to do that. But she really got out of her comfort zone. And what I love about what she's done is that it's very much like the novel. The novel is, to me, an absolute hybrid of science fiction, fantasy, YA, you know, a little thriller thrown in there. And what Yvonne has done is to take her old-fashioned German woodcut style and introduce a retro sci-fi, almost Barbarella, Flash Gordon aspect to it with some real graphic novel sensibilities. So it's a hybrid all the way around, and I couldn't be more proud of the work she's done on it. How did author Craig Johnson, the guy behind the Longmire series of books, influence your writing of this book? First of all, you know, Craig and I became very, very good friends during the filming of the Longmire series. I was pretty much, I think, the only member of the cast who had read all of the books. So we would often talk about writing and whatnot, and he knew I was a big reader. And he actually made me the uh, contraction police, not only on the set with the scripts, but, you know, with his books. He would send me the arcs of the books and go, hey, let me know if you catch any contractions for Henry standing there. <laughs> and I finally got brave enough to show him the first few chapters of Tinderbox. You know, it was one of those, am I wasting my time? Should I continue with this? And he and his wife, Judy, were so supportive and so kind and very encouraging. And so it was with their support that I finished the novel. It took a few more years after that, but still, they at least gave me the wherewithal to continue on the path that I was on. And when I think back, you know, writers have very, very different styles. And I appreciate a lot of different writers. You know, I mean, everybody from Follett to Franzen to Stephen King, you know, and to my friends, Craig Johnson and Chris Bojalian. And Craig has such a lean, clean style. It's very Hemingway-esque. And there was always something I'd go back to, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but in A Movable Feast, Hemingway always said, if at the end of the day you've written one true sentence, then you're a writer. Hmm. And Craig really embodies that. And so, as you can tell from my speech patterns, I can be very verbose. You know, I can go on for a while. And so part of not only writing this, but certainly of editing it was cleaning it up and making it concise and making it a little bit more clear without a whole lot of window dressing. I really enjoyed some of the puns that you went with in this book. You talked yeah. about the original Hans Christian Andersen story that had a witch in it, W-I-T-C-H. Yeah. You had a witch as well, but it was a part of the Foretellers, also known as the Y of Mist Tear, 
the wear of middle tier, the win of back tier, and the witch of front tier. At what point did you realize that you wanted to make this very subtle switch between the witch that we're familiar with from Halloween and witch that is normally posed as part of a question? Exactly. That was one of my desires from the outset. Interestingly enough, the production company I have with my wife, Yvonne, is called Frab Just Day Entertainment, and Frab Just Day is from Jabberwocky. The Lewis Carroll books, Through the Looking Glass and Alice in Wonderland, are huge favorites. Hmm. And it's like what you said, you know, I mean, written for kids, but there's so much complexity and depth and wordplay. It's all very thought-provoking. And so in creating another world, I almost wanted a Through the Looking Glass feel. I wanted this sort of fantastical, whimsical place, you know, that some of the situations could make you smile. And the four tellers, of which there are four, you know, was a really lovely way to introduce this prophecy idea. And part of me as well, you know, I said we'd retain the fairy tale aspect of the book. I also wanted to pay homage to the original story. And there is a tree, but as you know, it's not a tree. It's something else. There are dogs. <laughs> they are all something else. And so I had actually wanted to print the short story at the end of the novel so people could compare what I stole and what I changed and everything else. But they, they would say, no, there's problems with the estate and everything. We can't do that. Give them a website and they can go look it up. It's easy to find. <laughs> but it was part of that trying to make the story fun. And my daughter, for instance, and she's in the acknowledgments too, Indigo, words like Ecro and Cloudshine. She loves wordplay. You know, she's a little wordsmith already at 13 years old. And that's kind of a hallmark to a lot of my writing, hopefully, is that sense of humor and that whimsy. And since this was going to remain a fairy tale, I wanted that sense of fun in there. I've got a six and four-year-old at home. It's always a joy to uh, have them appreciate something that I like, especially in that joke realm. I'd have to imagine it's pretty cool to have your 12-year-old gain that appreciation and be able to contribute to puns like that. No, nah, it's true. I mean, it's so funny. Going back to when she was like six, I remember she said something and I just went, what? Uh, <laughs> while we're waiting for something. So in the nice time, I said, in the nice time, what do you mean? She goes, well, you always say in the meantime, and I'd rather it were the nice time. I don't know like that, you know? That's fantastic. So whether it is Lou Diamond Phillips, Lewis Carroll, Hemingway, any of your big influences, everybody goes through writer's block. What are some of the ways that you uh, worked yourself through writer's block as you had been writing this book over the last decade? It's funny because I know a lot of people experience writer's block because they're doing it eight hours a day. It's tough, man. I mean, that's a grind. And since my writing was sporadic, fortunately, there were long periods of time where I wouldn't be writing, where I would literally be just thinking about it. I would call it marinating, the same way that I would work out a screenplay. And a lot of that time is spent doing something else, physical. If I really get to a point where I just, I'm not sure what's going on, I almost have to go work out. I'll take a jog or I'll hit the treadmill or during this pandemic, I've taken up yoga and I've got my straps at home and everything else. But by getting the juices flowing literally, you know, and getting the heart rate up, it seems to spark my mind a little bit. And that that certainly helps because I'm doing something on autopilot with my body, but my mind is free to wander. And the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of times I learn lines that way too when I'm acting. You know, I'll get on the treadmill and that way I can set up the script and just walk and walk uphill and read and read and read and overread and just pound it in my head. So I, I've discovered that by multitasking like that, there are obviously fringe benefits to working out during writer's block. 
You've obviously worn a lot of different hats as an entertainer over the years, acting, writing, directing, adding uh, a novel to uh, that whole equation. Now, at the heart of it all is storytelling. What's the key to a good story, Lou? Wow. Well, the first word that came to mind is humanity. Hmm. It's interesting because I think I've often said that to Craig. Even though they're mysteries, there is a great deal of humanity in there. It was one of the uh, the real flags that I waved during the filming of Longmire. It's like we can never just let these crime victims become victims. They're people, you know. And no matter what the story is, no matter how fantastical it is, and this was truthfully my aim and hope with the tinderbox is that you can tell a story. You can tell a fantastical story and a journey, and it can be technically correct, and it can be all of these things. But if people can't relate to it, if it doesn't touch their hearts, if it doesn't make them think, and if they can't put themselves into it to a certain extent, then uh, you failed as a storyteller. It's the reason why we used to sit around campfires and tell stories, because we're passing on lore. Interestingly enough, I think that sci-fi, which is an extrapolation of our modern-day Westerns, are an extension of the morality tales, the Aesop's fables. Here are lessons. Here are things that speak to the human condition. And it's also, interestingly enough, the tinderbox is set against a backdrop of war. Aristotle did that. Shakespeare did that. You know, they did that to really underline and illustrate the human qualities that we all aspire to. Courage, bravery, conviction, honesty, big, big, big questions of character. And a lot of times you cannot convey those in a way that's not pedantic in a regular setting. So you go into the Old West or you go into outer space or whatever, where the stakes are so incredibly high. In this, literally, it's a war that will either consume the planets or they will find peace. There's a kingdom that could topple or not. So the stakes are very high. But at the center of that is a coming-of-age story, is a young man trying to figure out who he really is. Two young people who find love in the midst of trying to find themselves. And once again, in absolutely fantastical situations. So yeah, at the heart of storytelling, it's a yarn that's not only entertaining, but that has to, in some way, remind you of your own humanity. Very well put there. And I'd like to end today's conversation with something I call internet fact check. A lot of information on the internet, anywhere from 30 to 95% of it is utter BS. So would you mind playing this game with me? No, let's do it. Okay, so you did much of your growing up here in Texas. You graduated high school in Corpus Christi and uh, graduated from UT Arlington with a BFA in drama. Did you work at Whataburger as a teenager? One of my first jobs, I was a crew chief and employee of the month. Thank you very much. <laughs> I went back down to see my dad, who still lives in Flower Bluff, and went into a Whataburger, and they gave me a free burger and a shake, man, just because they, they had heard the story. I went back into the one that I had worked in when I, you know what? God, 40 years ago now, something like that. Yeah, that had, had to have been close to the original Whataburger, which was in that Corpus Christi area. Yeah, exactly. Corpus Christi is the home of the Whataburger and Whataburger Institute. That's right. Okay, so based on that then, you've obviously eaten Whataburger once or twice in your life, and you uh, are out in California quite a bit of the oh, time now, in and out. Whataburger or in and out? See, this is massive. This is terrible. You're setting me up for you know, a, a lot of eight. Uh, I got, you know, I got to say In-N-Out's pretty darn good. In-N-Out just edges it out, but it's because they offer it with that animal style with the grilled onions and the, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. Although a Whataburger with jalapeno, man, that's, you know, and I used to grill the onions myself when I was cooking it. So there you go. So after landing the role of Richie Valens in La Bamba, you put on 15 pounds to get a chubbier face and then learned how to sing and play guitar. Is that true? 
Yes and no. Okay. Yes, I put on 15 pounds because I was a skinny little, you know, SOB. <laughs> and yeah, Luis Valdez wanted wider shoulders and bigger arms and all of that. Because I mean, Richie was kind of a barrel chested young man. That's how he was built. So I was never going to get that, but I could at least get a little bigger. So yeah, I was eating five meals a day and working out during the entire week of rehearsal. I mean, it was crazy. And I had a wonderful guitar instructor, a man named Jim Fox, who was also a magician. And I had three or four guitar lessons a day because I did not play guitar. He taught me all of the notes by rote, you know? Huh. Yeah. So it was crazy. So, I mean, I'm literally hitting all of the notes on the guitar. And Brian Setzer even said, hey, man, burning solo. I said, it's not me. Cesar Rojas from Los Lobos. And they had already recorded all of the songs, so there was never a question of me singing. I eventually went on and did my own singing on Broadway, you know, uh, for yeah. the King and I. And I've sung on The Ranch. And I've also done a couple of songs in, like, Elena of Avalor, the Disney uh, princess animated show. Regarding Young Guns, Emilio Estevez was depressed during the shoot at one point because he had broken up with a girlfriend. So you decided to play a prank involving a sheep to cheer him up? Yes, this is true. This is very true. We have to back up a little bit because Emilio started this. You know, <laughs> he started it. On the very first day of filming, every single one of us, who, the regulators, got these boxes from supposedly 20th Century Fox saying, just wanted you to know what we really think of you guys. Open it up. And he had put cow pies, big floppy <laughs> cow patties and all these boxes and you know, delivered them to our trailer. So I said, okay, it's on. So yeah, Emilio uh, was the only one who uh, was without a girlfriend for a while. And Kiefer and I were like, okay, we got to get this guy. So we were shooting on a sheep ranch and I paid the rancher a hundred bucks to borrow a sheep for a few hours. And <laughs> he did not take it all day. And as you remember, there's a brothel scene in, mm -hmm. in the young So we had corsets and garters and all of that. So I literally had wardrobe dress up the sheep. We put it in the trailer. Problem was, we would see our trailers in the morning and not again until the evening because we always had to get far, far, far away from roads or telephone poles or anything else like that, right? So we didn't get back until like 6 o'clock, and the sheep had eaten everything in the trailer. <laughs> and literally like chewed up sofa cushions or whatever and pooped over everything. So it turned out to be an even better joke than I had originally planned. Yeah, no kidding. That's awesome. So you're a big fan of poker, even having hosted games at your house for two decades? Mm-hmm. Very true. Back in the late 80s, early 90s. And it went on for like, yeah, for like 20 years. Some of the people that came through, was, I mean, Kiefer was always there. Brad Pitt before Thelma and Louise. Dave Schwimmer before Friends. Luke Perry, God rest him, was a good buddy. Mm -hmm. He and Jason Priest at and I would hang out. Brandon Lee was a dear friend, and he was a regular there because I had a pool table and poker. And so, you know, it was, I don't know, man, it was like the frat house there for a while. So, yeah, an amazing group of people. Uh, George Clooney, because Miguel Ferrer was a good friend, and so George would pop in every once in a while. Really kind of this who's who's Algonquin roundtable of Hollywood back right around 1990. Out of all those guys, was there anybody who was the clear-cut sucker at the table? Kiefer never played poker because he just, you know, as his dear friend Mo Dunster, who's an old English teddy boy, would say, he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the patience for it. He doesn't <laughs> have the patience for it. Schwimmer, very smart, very good, but you could put him on tilt because he would get really upset. You could get inside his head. You could buy a yeah. uh, two-bedroom condo inside his head and he was done for, exactly. huh? Exactly. Courage Under Fire, this is not necessarily a uh, internet fact check, but what was it like trading lines with Denzel Washington? Obviously one of the greats. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I shot part of that in Austin. Really? I did not know yeah. that. Yes, all of the Washington sequences. As a matter of fact, the whole movie was shot in Texas. 
all of the Denzel sequences were shot in Austin and all the Desert Storm sequences were shot in El Paso. So very proud of that. As a matter of fact, they gave me a Lone Star Award because of it. That was really sweet of them. Hmm. But yeah, man, thank goodness. You know, I mean, Denzel was so kind to me and so lovely. I mean, because he could have intimidated the crap out of me. Hmm. And I remember the first day of working with Meg, which we shot after all the Denzel stuff. Man, she brought the heat. And I thought to myself, holy crap, I survived Denzel. And now Meg's going to kick my ass. You know, <laughs> that cast was so strong that you really had to bring your A game. And it was interesting, though, because, I mean, Denzel, he was so kind and so friendly on set, but he didn't want to get to know Meg's team all that much because he, he wanted to be getting to know us on camera. It was kind of an interesting, almost method kind of choice of his, which worked out great because he was always watching this and always paying attention to every little thing we did. So that was an amazing experience. One of my favorite films of all time of mine and a performance that I'm quite proud of. And I got jacked for that. I had to really get jacked. Speaking of Brandon Lee, uh, he introduced me to my trainer, Daryl Chan, and Daryl really got me in shape for that. And then I hadn't been able to work in Austin again until I directed A Fear of the Walking Dead, which was an absolute blast, but shot it in the summer. So I started learning the joy of gold bond powder, to be quite honest. Did you direct the season of Fear the Walking Dead where they were at Dell Diamond, the baseball field? No, the okay. one immediately after. Okay, season. gotcha. And uh, last thing, you uh, had a role on one of my favorite television shows of the last decade, but it's probably not one of the shows that's coming to your mind right now. You uh, had a, I think it's a was a one-episode arc on You're the Worst. What was it like uh, being on the set of You're the Worst? Because that show was sickly hilarious. Right? I mean, just twisted. And it's so bizarre because that's like the third or fourth time where I played myself. <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm, I'm playing Lou Diamond Phillips. You know, I did it on Cougar Town, and there's a, a short out there called Lucy in the Sky with Diamond. And it's always so bizarre to play this really twisted, sort of crazy version of yourself, you know. And it's always fun. But, I mean, anytime I get to go do comedy, and the funny thing is I was nominated for an Emmy for a, a comedy short and then also for a, a real lovely theatrical short called Conversations in L.A., but anytime I go do comedy, I almost say yes without even reading the script because I cut my teeth on comedy. My very first professional gig was part of a comedy troupe in Fort Worth called mm. The Zero Hour, where we would do like, you know, sketch comedy uh, in punk bars. It was actually called Zeros in Fort Worth, where if you weren't funny, they threw a beer bottle at you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I've always had a deep love for comedy and we'll jump at it. You know, I don't care what the pay, but, you know, with a cast like you're the worst and with writing like that. It's always so much fun, and it's always so hard for me to keep a straight face, you know? <laughs> and I mean, it's like doing Spike or, or Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I'm yeah. working with such talented comedians, man, that half the time I'm having to be the straight guy. And it's always a blast, you know, not only to deliver funny lines, but to try to keep it together when somebody's just going to town on you, you know, like James Roday or Andy Samberg. It's just hilarious. He is Lou Diamond Phillips, an actor, director, writer, and producer whose credits include everything from La Bamba to Young Guns, Courage Under Fire, Longmire, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Prodigal Son, and You're the Worst. His writing credits now include his first novel, a sci-fi space opera titled The Tinderbox, Soldier of Indira, inspired by the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale of the same name. Lou, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very entertaining book. You bet it, Trey. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it.
And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.